Welcome to the Asia Society Hong Kong Movers and Shakers podcast. Through the short interactive fireside chat, we get to meet with the leaders and game changers in different industries for insights into their personal journey to success, what they learned, how they failed, and other interesting wisdom they may want to share. Today's podcast with Allison Friedman here at the West Kowloon Cultural District, one of the largest arts and cultural developments in the world. During nearly two decades in China, Ms. Friedman worked closely with Chinese and international governments, nonprofit and private organizations, as well as established and emerging independent performing artists across genres. She founded the successful cultural exchange organization of Ping Pong Productions in 2010. Prior to PPP, Allison held producer and general manager roles at dance and music institutions, including Beijing Modern Dance Company, as well as the famed composer conductor Tan Dun's production and management company. Allison sat down with ASHK Executive Director Alice Mong to conduct the following interview. Today is uh, March 14th, and I'm here with um, uh, Allison Friedman. Um, so I'm going to have Allison introduce herself uh, with her title, and then we're going to start our uh, Movers and Shakers podcast for March, celebrating uh, women's. National Women's Month, and also celebrating the arts, uh, because March was supposed to be the Art Month for Hong Kong, and as far as we're concerned, it still is. So we're going to uh, be talking to some really interesting uh, Hong Kong women leaders in the art in March. So, Allison, um, your name and title. Sure. Thanks, Alice. My name is Allison Friedman, and I'm the artistic director of performing arts for West Kowloon Cultural District. And Allison, how long have you been in this position and in Hong Kong? I came to Hong Kong at the end of 2017 to take up this position, so it's just over two years now. And so far, survived. What a ride! <laughs> I have to say, there's a Monty Python quote: "No one ever expected the Spanish Inquisition." And I have to say, when I arrived here two and a half years ago, I thought my biggest challenge would be opening all of our performing arts centers and creating inspirational programming for performances for Hong Kong and Asia. And uh, didn't expect that we'd be doing almost a year now of different kinds of crisis management. Well, yes, you guys have managed it quite well, and uh, and you know we all have to kind of. Um, move along with the times and, and adapt and, and adjust. And you guys have now done a lot of programming uh, also online, which I really want to applaud you for. But I think for, for this purpose of this Mover and Podcast, a lot of what we're uh, really interested in is kind of how you got started. Like you're people who inspire you uh, when you were growing up. Um, you know, is it your parents, teacher, friends, mentor? Uh, and who inspired you, and what are some of the most important lessons uh, that person has instilled in you? Wow. I have to take a moment to think about this. <laughs> take your time. Take your time. I think... Well, let me start. In terms of setting me on this path, it, often things happen in your life that you think are small, and then they end up having massive uh, implications. And the way that I ended up in Hong Kong, I actually I've been here about two years, but before that I was in Beijing and Shanghai for almost 16 years. And what set me on that path was actually an opportunity in high school that was almost a happenstance. I had taken Spanish in middle school, loved languages, and my high school had Chinese, which was at that time, many many years ago, quite forward-thinking and rare. So when signing up for classes as a 14-year-old, I just thought, oh, Spanish, French, Latin, wait, Chinese, that's cool, check. And there's the rest of my life. Um, but 
Beyond that, I think another pivotal moment was in 2001, my second time in China. I was there interning at CNN, thinking I'd go more the journalism route in my life, even though I'd always loved arts and culture. And in that summer, I met a dance company called The Living Dance Studio. Wu Wenguang, one of the first independent documentary filmmakers in China, Wen Hui, who was with one of the big government song and dance troops, but independently did a lot of very avant-garde uh, contemporary dance. I performed with them that summer, and it was really the first time after being in China for different periods that I felt like I'd found family. I was no longer a foreigner in a foreign land, but we had this, as cheesy as it sounds, we had this shared culture of modern dance. And that was transformative. That was this moment of realizing I could combine some very schizophrenic halves in my life, my academic interest in Chinese culture, Chinese literature, Chinese language, and my personal passion for the performing arts. So I went back uh, and applied for a Fulbright Fellowship to come to China in 2002 to research performance in China. I was at Peking University at Beida and also at the Beijing Wuda Yuan at the Beijing Dance Academy. And never left until I came to Hong Kong two years ago. Well, so you were a performer uh, it, as well. I mean, I didn't know that about you. I uh, never knew. professional, always uh -huh. amateur. Right. And then, but who kind of got you started in the, the performing or the language? I mean, is it like, it sounds like the language, the Chinese part, you, you discover there's something interesting. Um, you know, is there somebody like kind of push you that way or um, I guess the two parallel sides the language side and the performance side definitely finally intersected thanks to Fulbright but the two parallel sides until that time were, were pretty separate and a number of teachers growing up um, as a kid your parents want you to take piano they want you to do all these activities and uh, one of the only one of the two that stuck one was piano lessons I played for almost 10 years uh, all through high school and also tap dance, I would oh, like to say, oh, was my entry-level drug to the world of dance. And, and from there, I ended up doing all the school plays and things like that. But then also, I think from this, um, what are some of the greatest lessons um, that you've learned? Um, sounds like you already uh, mentioned kind of pivoting. I mean, when you discover something and then pivoting to an to a interest or passion or finding that combination of, of two and then doing something. But are some of the lessons in your life that you feel like it's, it's, it's that you would like to share? I think you mentioned um, that pivoting or that finding the combination. For me, the through line has been the championing of and versus or. Because growing up, you have these diverse passions and the world tries to tell you, pick one. Pick right. academics or business, pick arts or business in your case, pick China or performance, um, do the school play or do your math homework. And constantly the world around you is saying, pick, choose or. And for me, and I think for a lot of people, especially in contemporary society, it really is about finding the and, finding the intersection. And certainly for me, many steps of the way have allowed me to do that. Fulbright was a watershed because it allowed me to combine this academic interest in Chinese culture and history with my personal passion for the performing arts. And in addition to that, what I've also found is um, I wasn't only interested in art for great art's sake. I, I've, certainly that's crucial. But what really mattered to me and what I found really was pivotal was the role that the arts could play in bringing cultures and countries together and to show us our shared humanity even when we disagree. And that was actually the impetus both for coming to West Kowloon Cultural District 
Um, but even before that, for starting a company that I started in Beijing uh, almost 10 years ago now called Ping Pong Productions. And that was really a cultural diplomacy mission. At that time, in the run-up to the Olympics, there was all this burgeoning interest in China. And there was so much more accessible information on both sides of the divide. But it was, I wouldn't say it was wrong, I would just say it was incomplete. So yes, you could read a great article about um, China's burgeoning economy in the New York Times or the Washington Post circa 2003. That wasn't wrong, but it was incomplete. It didn't show the full picture of the diversity and the complexity and the nuance of what was going on in China. And vice versa. Finally, in Beijing, I could buy my Starbucks around the corner near Tiananmen Square. But it didn't mean that that was representing all of the complexity and diversity of American culture. And so that's where arts and culture can come in, because the more, by watching two performances from the same place, they could be so different, it forces you to um, have a broader perspective on a, a, a people or a society. And it also allows a level of emotional impact that you don't get from going shopping or from reading a newspaper. And Ultimately, it's at the emotional level where we're able to change hearts and minds, not at the intellectual level. And so again, that's where we need the arts more than ever in this divided society to have that emotional impact to, to disagree but not tear us apart with our disagreements. We can disagree, but we can still come together to, to grapple with that in a much more constructive way. That is, that is really, then this leads me to the next question, um, which I think maybe uh, we already know the answer. Um, in your career, what has uh, been more important, EQ or IQ? Well, you need both. You need EQ and IQ, and they inform each other. Mm -hmm. And often, I think, I can't remember whether it was a Supreme Court justice, somebody um, had a quote where they make a decision based on their emotions, and then they use their intellect to justify it. <laughs> so I would say um, they, they often uh, play a... Um, maybe a, a partnership or a mitigating role for each other. Um, if we only lived from our Dionysian, right. you know, um, passionate selves, you could potentially say it might be chaotic. On the other hand, I think a lot of our problems in society is we don't listen to our hearts. We don't listen to the EQ and that deeper, truer voice that's telling us something. And we use our intellect to justify all of these other decisions that get us in trouble. Whereas if we just listened, and actually, Going back to your earlier question about professionalism and our career paths, I've even looked back and the times where I've most regretted business decisions or personal decisions have absolutely been when I was relying on my head, not my heart, and I wasn't listening to my gut. And then later I look back and say, gosh, why didn't I just listen to my intuition? Well, I think what you have touched on is something that I share with my colleagues and a lot of my friends. Um, it's the, um, I call it the Wizard of Oz um, uh, test. You know how each of the Tin Man and the Scarecrow, they all have something that they're striving right. for, whether it's the heart, the brain, but the one area that I think sometimes we, we forget, um, and that's the courage. Isn't that what the line is asking for? So often when I make decisions, yes, sometimes it's relying on the heart and sometimes on the head, but then having the guts and the courage to to take risk. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like you be have bold. be bold, but you have taken this risk because for you know uh, that turning studying Chinese uh, and when nobody else was doing it, <laughs> going to China and live there for how many years, and then uh, when not that many people, and by the time I think you let there a lot of people more um, uh, Westerners or more expats were living there, but then also having the courage to also take a um, uh, pivot and coming to Hong Kong uh, two years ago. So, so I think that combination of the head, heart, and the courage 
Um, I think it's something that, that, oh, like you, that. you embody. But I think what you said about the end as well, I think we have a mutual friend who, uh, Caitlin, also, when she was studying at NYU, um, the, the, the school wanted her to pick one major, either Chinese or, or performance. Um, and, but she said, you know, I grew up in Hong Kong, I can do both, and ended up graduating with both degrees, so so I think and I think an incredible career. Correct, yes. and, and and so and that's how I think kind of when we first met, I think it might have been through Caitlin, but then um, another question I also kind of want to ask you, and, and we've asked uh, on this podcast, is what is uh, what's one of the best or most worthwhile investment that you've ever made. Well, certainly the investment in learning Chinese. <laughs> that goes without saying. And it was blood, sweat, and tears. I remember the hours I used to spend and the pages. I mean, it's, it's like that Jack Nicholson, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. The stacks of pages of handwritten characters and the hours I spent doing that all through high school and college. But I, I'm so, it was absolutely worth it because now look at the world today and the things that I've been able to do in my career thanks to that investment of time to learn the language and to, when I went to China, I also made the commitment to work almost exclusively in Chinese organizations, not in, in MNCs or global other um, international, because I was there and I thought, if I'm going to be here, I'm, I want to dive in and experience it. And it was hard at first. I mean, I had no idea what was being said around me. The, the language was a, a real struggle and it was exhausting. But over time, to be able to then be completely immersed in the language, the culture, and the working mechanisms, uh, Beijing feels like home now, and, and there's a level of understanding you get from that investment that you wouldn't, kind of skipping over the surface, uh, getting by. Um, I think we've talked about this, uh, comparing your life in Beijing and Hong Kong. I mean, it, it is, on the surface, they're, they're both Chinese cities, but it's very different. Um, briefly talk about it's, what do you think the, gosh, the differences are. In it's different world. worlds. I mean, um, there are... Let me uh, summarize. So I think... Uh, uh, certainly scale, you know, living, living in a city like Beijing, it's the size of Belgium, takes 45 minutes just to cross the street. <laughs> but I think the difference in um, the, the 20 years almost that I was in Beijing, it felt, uh, my friend described it as adolescent energy. It was that sense of opening up to new possibility, to new opportunity, and there was a great comfort with risk with that, just like teenagers. They, they have a very high level Fearless. of comfort with, yeah. <laughs> with risk. Yeah. And they're, the good side of that is you get unbelievable entrepreneurs and artists coming out of China, and the bad side of that is you have minds collapse and they're a real safety hazard. So having a comfort with risk obviously comes with risk and real, real danger. So that, that energy, that the, the, what kept me in China for 16 years was that entrepreneurial, creative um, energy that you could almost feel. Hong Kong feels like a much more established, it, because it is, it's, it's a more of a developed country, city rather than a, a developing city. And as a result, it is much more risk averse. It feels uh, much more set. I, I used to say, you know, in, in China, nothing's easy, but nothing's impossible. No doesn't mean no. It means ask a different way, ask somebody else, find a new way to do it. Whereas in a developed system, the good thing is you have rule of law. The bad thing is very often no means no. And as a result, I find in Hong Kong, there's a, a quite a bit more rigidity uh, in doing business and working here than I ever felt in Beijing. Uh, yes, I think that's really interesting. Um, sometimes I feel, yeah, and also the scale of the city as yeah, well. Yeah, and, and that's not yeah, just can't compare. Yeah. On the other hand, what's miraculous about Hong Kong is there are a few cities that are just this beautiful. You can be in the most spectacular urban landscape, 
for brunch and then in a matter of minutes you can be on a boat to an island or a beach somewhere in the mountains with no uh, uh, trace of a city around you right. and that's just a spectacular place to live. Well that has really helped us in recent days I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> the outdoors. The outdoors. Um, yeah that, that we can really escape to um, these days has been a wonderful uh, asset for us. Um, one of the questions uh, that we ask also is really uh, talking about failure. Um, how has a failure uh, in what your professional life or personal life, uh, maybe kind of set you up for success uh, and lessons from that, uh, you know. Yeah. I, I'm, uh, one of my favorite quotes is Samuel Beckett's, uh, try again, fail again, fail better. And I think as an entrepreneur running my own company in China for six years, eight years before I, I moved here, um, the Failures are, just as successes are, they're not finite. They, they lead directly into the next thing, either the next failure or the next successful failure. Um, so my example of a failure actually ties a little bit back to your question about EQ or IQ. And uh, when I was first starting Ping Pong Productions, it was a brand new organization. I wanted to fast track as, as quickly as I could to develop the business. And I had two different artists to work with. One was, uh, it had a major corporate sponsor backing. It was a big government uh, state-owned enterprise in, in Beijing. Um, brand names, big blockbuster. It was going to be a real coup to have that as a client. And then this other one was a two kids I'd worked with before, unheard of modern dance company, but I was passionate about them. And I thought my head, my heart knew I really cared about working and developing the careers of this dance company, but my head was saying, no, 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 you're starting a new business. Be smart, Allison. You need to go with the big name, the brand name, go over there. So I signed with them. I started working on this project and it was so chaotic and problematic. They, they tried to cheat me out of money. I had to get lawyers involved. Um, they ended up suing each other. The, commercial sponsor and the uh, the organization itself and it was n weeks almost months of heartache and and lost revenue and a disaster I never let go of the small modern dance company however and over time it that turned into Tao Dance Theater oh, and they've now great. toured all over the world Lincoln Center Sydney Opera House more than 50 countries on five continents and I launched the career of now one of China's largest and most important um, modern dance artists uh, around today and so what I learned from that was, if I'm listening to my head and thinking brand, the shoulds, you know, shoulds are very dangerous. Correct. So when I should be going with the big name, should be going with the, the financial group over here, but I really wanted to, was being drawn to the smaller thing, the should ended up costing me money, costing me time, and was a total failure. Whereas uh, had I, from the beginning, just followed my passion, I could have avoided all of that. And in the end, when I did with supporting that artist, it led to success. That's a great lesson. Um, I, yeah, I think I, I agree, totally agree with you. Sometimes your head and your heart, and and sometimes, you know, the, the little engine that could stop being the big engine and exactly. having seen the Tao a performance when you brought them to Hong Kong a few years ago they are fabulous and I'm not a fan of, uh, of modern dance <laughs> uh, but having seen their performances and, uh, and and I become a convert so I want to congratulate you on that um, but right now another question I uh, also kind of uh, we ask all of our um, participants here um, biggest fear uh, short-term and long-term um, you now are running, you know, a major organization. You know, this is also kind of a startup. 
all eyes is on on on, on West Kowloon, on, on West Kowloon. Uh, and it's you know you're part of the team. You know, is it is it fear about short term and long term fear for sure. yourself? West Kowloon Cultural District is one of the largest arts and cultural developments in the world right now, building multiple performing arts centers, two museums, huge amounts of gorgeous outdoor park space, which in a dense city like Hong Kong is such an oasis. And that's really what drew me to the project is, we were talking earlier, be bold. This is one of the boldest, most audacious projects in the world right now, and it's so exciting, and the potential is huge, and with great potential comes great risk. So obviously short term, I think like everybody else, we're all most worried about coronavirus and, and the short term and long term implications for our businesses, for our day-to-day our -day lives, for the entire arts industry. Right now, Asia's been going through it for a couple of months now. The US is just starting to shut down Broadway, shut down major international arts tours. So it's, it's a bit interesting to now watch that start, those domino um, effects start to happen. So short term is, is certainly that concern. Long-term fear, um, to be honest, it, it, it's what's next. We've, I think climate crisis is a real issue and, and we'll start to impact our business in ways that we don't imagine yet. If it's no longer feasible for major arts organizations to tour, whether because of natural disaster, because of these uh, pandemics, what impact does that have in bringing world-class artists to Shichu Center, to Free Space, to our future performing arts centers here at West Kowloon? I think that um, those might be longer term down the, down the road, so we don't have to worry about them yet, but I think it's something we need to start talking about now. I think uh, you also, because of the virus and what you've been doing at Free Space, you guys have been really um, jumping on technology as well. And that's another, my concern has been with the social distancing. I think it's, I, I call it social distancing sucks. <laughs> I'm sorry, SDS. social distancing, yeah. But, as, uh, but in terms of building social cohesion uh, with the arts, but you guys have continued to deliver some really interesting programs online. So, so maybe the long term is going to be some investment in the technology and the way, uh, just because we can't be in the same room together doesn't mean we can continue to, to, to see to each engage. other perform and engage and, yeah. and you know, um, so is that something that you guys are also investing in? I always take technology with a grain of salt. I'm a bit of a Luddite, but more so, to me, the power of the performing arts is about that live human experience. It's about being in the same room. And the difference between performing arts and visual arts is with visual arts, you have an object that, that uh, is still there. With performing arts, the beauty and the tragedy is it only exists in that moment. And so if you weren't there, you've missed it. It won't be repeated. Even if you do the show again the next night, it'll be something else. And there's real power to having physical human bodies in the same room sharing that experience that digital experience doesn't replicate. That doesn't, so to me, digital has to be something else, not a replacement of the live experience. And on the one hand, I hope We've been doing amazing um, live broadcasts at Free Space in the last six weeks. Since the coronavirus started, uh, we've had to shut down our theaters. Shichu Center, our, our center for Chinese opera, has been closed. Free Space, our new center for contemporary performance, has been closed. But our the commercial establishments stayed open because that was their commercial decisions, not West Kowloon's. And because the live house stayed open, we continued to program music in there and broadcast it Facebook Live, Instagram Live. And we found that the virtual community that develops is a nice, it's very needed. People are lonely, people are bored, people are restless and anxious too. So to have an outlet 
I, the arts can bring challenging ideas, but they can also just bring joy and just bring release and that sense of you're not alone in this. And so our performances at Free Space Live House that we've put on Facebook and, and Instagram that we're continuing to do throughout the rest of the spring has helped. Uh, I mean, it's, it's proof of concept that we need the arts more than ever at times like these. I think you're very much, yeah, you're hitting it right on the nose because right now, for me personally, this last... Uh, having not been to a concert in almost or, or, or live performance in the last two months. Oh my gosh, that's uh, a record. <laughs> well, yeah, it is a record for me. And, yeah. and But now I'm looking forward to it. I think it makes you appreciate what, because we've been deprived of, but it's that live performance and the li live interaction. And uh, unfortunately, I mean, my sister posted online just the other day that she was at Carnegie Hall last week with some friends, and I was so envious. And starting this week, they're closed. They're closed. So I think uh, I, I think sometimes absence makes the hearts grow fonder. There and and I think uh, the the what you said about live performances, uh, there is a difference between going to see a play and going to see a movie. And I don't think that's going to be replaced. But uh, but in this during this uh, time of social distancing, we do uh, unfortunately have to rely on technology to still connect. I, exactly. I, and uh, but right now we're getting toward the end of the uh, podcast, and I have still a few questions to. To um, to kind of pose to you, um, your first trip to China. We've already talked about you know how you started Chinese, um, but you know originally for this broadcast we often ask um, you know our thirtieth anniversary, and so I will not ask you the thirtieth. Uh, where were you thirty years ago? Um, you were probably a baby, uh, but but your first trip to China and and uh, or Asia and your initial impression uh, because it's very different than today, I mean, the, the China or Asia of your uh, first trip? My very first trip to China was in 2000, and it was to Beijing. I thought it was just going to be for a couple of months for a summer program, and a few weeks in, I have to say I was in love. I was in love with the chaos, I was in love with the, despite the scale of it, there was a, a ground level accessibility. Um, even though, it, and again, it has to do with timing. In 2000, it was the year before the, they got the Olympic bid, there was a sense of opening to the world, and then I was back a year later uh, in 2001, a couple of weeks after they got the Olympic bid for 2008, and the city just felt electric. It was this sense of, it's our time, it's our moment, and it, op it was opening up to the world, and people were, it, it was a sense of such optimism. Um, and I had spent uh, some time in between that in Harbin, in, in uh, the northeast of China, which was a different world. And the contrast between Beijing and Harbin, even though they're both on the east coast, was this realization of just the vast diversity of that, of, of that country. Growing up in America, you think, <laughs> well, we thought, we, we like to say America is very diverse, and, and it is, but the awareness of what that actually means is, as we're seeing now in recent events, is quite lacking. And so to go to China, which as an American growing up, you, you have this perception that it's one monolithic thing. So to be on the inside and realize the diverse, the ethnic diversity, the, the language, linguistic diversity, the cultural diversity, that was the thing that struck me the most, was there's not one China. Interesting. Um, one of the things um, we've been talking about books recently, especially this last couple of days, um, book women, <coughs> excuse me, book recommendations um, that you uh, a book that has that you can recommend to a young person around you know uh, who might be interested in what you're doing or just a book that's kind of inspired you, kind of got you started. Um, Ooh. Well, if it's young people interested in China. 
um, a classic that everybody read back in the day that I think is still relevant is Rivertown. I know it's cliche now, but Peter Hessler, his experience in the Peace Corps and his description of being an American in China, I, what I liked about his book was he did it with self-aware humor that wasn't uh, obnoxious or snarky. There was there it was a very funny book, but it was with such respect and curiosity. And so I, I loved Rivertown for a total newbie novice. I I don't know if any of Asia Society listeners are probably far more informed than the average American, but uh, the average listener. But I think that's a good one for you know my cousins in the Midwest. I always tell them start there. If um, for the arts, what, there's a great book that Claire Croft, who's a professor at University of Michigan, wrote about dance and diplomacy. Because again, um, the, the mission and my personal <laughs> raison d'etre and the whole reason I came to West Kowloon is because we need the arts to build bridges. We need to show the human side of, of countries and cultures beyond the headlines. And we also need to build the skills and next generations of empathy, and the arts help engender empathy. So if you want to read a really interesting book about, from one little corner, about dance and diplomacy, uh, Claire Croft's book, I would, I would definitely recommend. Very, both book I've not heard of, so I'm looking forward to maybe recommending it to my book club, uh, uh, because I think it's what you said about um, diplomacy is very much, uh, the cultural diplomacy or just the building bridges is very much part of the uh, mission of Asia Society. And uh, so, and I know we've worked with you, so maybe, um, gosh, we, you did a project for us when we brought um, the banjo. Cynthia Sayer. Yes, the, remember? jazz banjo, that's right. And, and, and tell us about that project, because you also helped Cynthia and her band members. Um, I remember uh, welcoming them when they conclude their tour here in Hong Kong after their China tour, which you uh, really successfully helped them uh, 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 help them put together and also send them to schools. Exactly. And please, tell I us think, more about that. Well, it links. It, it's a story about my previous company, but it links to what we do at West Kowloon. Is It's about long-term relationships. You can't have... I mean, one-off shows are great, but they have less impact than long-term partnership building. And so the artists we work with at Shichu Center and at Free Space are always multi-year. They come back again and again, and they, in addition to performances, we ensure that there are more deeper engagements with schools, with community groups, with different NGOs that service more underserved communities. It's a vital aspect of all of the programs that we do at West Kowloon. And that was also true with my company in China, Ping Pong, that toured Cynthia Sayer. And so in addition to bringing artists on tour in China, we worked with more than 25 cities, schools, universities, migrant schools, uh, and, and community centers. So when we would bring in artists like Cynthia Sayer, who's this amazing award-winning jazz uh, banjo musician, and her, her ensemble, we brought her to a number of schools in inner, inner China, that uh, cities that had rarely presented foreign artists before. And they came to the migrant schools to do workshops, to do concerts, and they learned a number of Chinese uh, local folk tunes that they did jazz arrangements and then performed for the kids and got the kids to sing along. And, um, and we, after I came to West Kowloon, my colleague took over ping pong and she actually brought them back for a second tour. And they went back to the schools and got to continue a lot of those relationships. Because they have fond memories of, of that trip. And also banjo also is a very folk music. And, and there's a lot of similarity too with certain folk uh, instruments in China as well. So, so it was really great to see uh, that we, when we did get them to Hong Kong, 
Um, they played a, uh, some wonderful concerts for us as well. So Well, the shared roots of instruments is incredible. We, uh, Free Space, we had our inaugural Jazz Fest last November, where and more than 14,000 people came to West Kowloon's Art Park and to Free Space over the two days. And one of the things we did, again, because our core value is about artists' relationships, community relationships, we, we brought not just the jazz musicians, but a lot of local uh, pipa and guzheng players, and they did a couple days of jam sessions up in our uh, small studio at Free Space, where it was incredible the kinds of synergies. If you just closed your eyes and listened, it sounded like they all made sense together, but then you looked at them and it looked like very diverse instruments. And we'll be doing that again later this November because we know the <laughs> This will stop and we can open our venues again. I, I'm looking our forward to it. I am looking, I'm so looking forward yeah. to it. Because, so we'll have some banjo. And yeah, well, any banjo. live music right now is something uh, that I'm, uh, you know, I can't speak highly. I, just We're so thirsty about. for it. Yes, I think very much so. So I know uh, time is short. I just have one final question for you. Um, and it is really um, a final advice you would give to your younger self, uh, whether 15... 25, whatever, you know, what are some of the, the... Trust your instinct and don't stress as much. Good advice. And that's something that um, I think right now, uh, don't stress yourself means is very important in this current climate. And uh, on that note, I want to thank uh, Allison for speaking uh, with us on our Mover and Shakers podcast. Thank you, Alice. Thank you, Asia Society. Thank you. Thank you.